Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, I'm Carolyn Ford. Today, I welcome Billy Mitchell, Editor-in-Chief at FedScoop and DefenseScoop. Billy leads an award-winning team of reporters in providing breaking news on the ways technology is transforming the operations and services of the federal government and U.S. military. And today we get Billy's insight on lots of things. We'll see what we actually get to. Like Billy and I have kind of lined up like testing implementation, policy changes, and then what's coming next in the federal IT landscape. So welcome to Tech Transforms, Billy. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited for this conversation, and I'm going to start it with one word, Billy, and I'm just going to let you respond. Okay. Are you ready for the word? Sure. Balloons. Uh, <laughs> please, please no more. <laughs> um, I, there's been a lot of balloons, and uh, I, I can't believe that this is the news cycle. Um, in, in my first year, you know, we launched this defense publication, Defense Scoop, back in September, meant to uh, really focus on the intersection of emerging technology and, and defense and how critical uh, that technology is to, to the future of warfare. And here we are reporting and working on the weekends, writing about, uh, you know, uh, fighter pilots shooting down balloons that have flown across the, the United States. Um, but uh, it is, you know, it is, is so... Uh, it, incredibly funny just to to watch how uh, this has captivated uh, our own publication, but really the the nation's interest because um, there are such uh, important implications uh, geopolitically uh, with with some of our biggest rivals, uh, notably China, that um, you know suspected and pretty much confirmed that this was a Chinese intelligence type of balloon. But um, and really, they still it, deny it, even though we've pulled the data, we can see what they were looking at, and they're still like, no, no. It was yeah, just, a, it, it was weather, it strayed. And and I think, you know, some of our, you know, we can get into this just us versus China and, and the intersection of tech later on in the conversation. But yeah, that, that will continue to be a theme that will probably never be on the same page as them um, and that they'll always be, you know, that that tier one rival. But, um, you know, in, in the aftermath of the initial balloon that was Chinese and then these other objects that have since been shot down, which, you know, were more than likely some sort of either research or commercial type objects that were um, here from domestic uh, organizations. Um, it, it's just so like fascinating. Some kids science project. <laughs> exactly. I saw I saw something pretty hilarious. A, a meme of like you want to get uh, a, an air show in, in your front yard. Just buy this hundred dollar Amazon weather balloon and fly it up into the the. Uh, you know the the air because it, in you know hours you'll have uh, F twenty two or F you know whatever there to shoot it down. So, um, but it, it really does spotlight the like all that goes into sensing and and the radar and and the technology involved um, in this thing in these things and sort of how NORAD and Northcom have had to respond. And you know we did a pretty interesting story in the aftermath of like. Why are all these balloons being shot or, or not balloons? Because they're, they're at this point just referred to as objects. Maybe some of them balloons, maybe some of them aren't, um, which is another question. How are they getting close enough to 
know that somebody's not in there. They're not going to, you know, take a life in shooting it down, but they haven't been able to give us details on, on what's out there, which really gets, you know, some, some members of my team's UFO radars, kind of their haunches up uh, because it, there's just so much mystery into this, but um, you know, the way they're able to sense and track these things and they've been able to really open up the aperture, if you will, on their radar. And that's why, you know, they're, they're shooting more things down because after the balloon, the initial balloon happened. Um, they made a decision to kind of open the scope on those things, and um, they're they're now tracking more things in in the atmosphere. So, um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of tech, and it kind of gets back to this really wonky term that uh, I, I wouldn't say it's it's all that we care about on on defense scoop, but it's really one of the most essential pieces of. Uh, the intersection of tech and, and the military is JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, which is really, uh, to sum it up, you know, an Internet of Things for the military and connecting generals, you know, wherever they are to the the kind of uh, commanders on the battlefield and making sure that sensors are sort of driving intelligence and decision making. And I think it comes back to the balloon conversation because it shows that there is that sensing ability and the sort of um, connectivity of all these different systems that, uh, uh, you know, you see that, that what it takes to sense something in the air and how quickly we can get, you know, uh, a couple uh, fighter jets up in the air to track it. And, you know, essentially when, when the command comes to, to shoot it down. So I think that's sort, sort of um, not the balloon story everyone's talking about, but it, it kind of um, is a thesis for how the future of war is going to work. Um, you know, Hopefully, we won't get to a time where we are uh, in a physical kinetic battle with China anytime soon, but it is going to be very tech-driven, um, and it, it really, you know, many people could look back at this as sort of that opening salvo of, of you know, an, a future conflict, but um, who knows? We're, we're just here in <laughs> February of 2023, and uh, this is all we have for now. Right. This is the best we've got to talk about. Well, there's... There have been many balloons. Like I, I listened to a spot on NPR and they said, we all do it. You're just not supposed to get caught. Yeah. So, I mean, why is it such a frenzy right now? Because we all know like this has been around. Is it because somebody saw it with the naked eye? And so then word spread because of social media. Why is this such a story right now? Are we that desperate for something to talk about? What? Yeah, I think just like global tensions, I think it kind of gets, you know, it starts there, you know, with, with what all that's going on in Ukraine and in mm. Russia. Um, I think um, I, I I think it could have <laughs> honestly have to do with the news cycle. I think there's also a lot of um, changes happening at the Pentagon right now with the way they're dealing with um you know, they were called UFOs and now they're called UAPs, um, aerial phenomena. And they're, they're really kind of opening um, and being more transparent about the things that are coming into the airspace. And um, maybe some of those in the past that were identified by pilots as UFOs or things like that were things like balloons. Um, who knows? But there's that. Um, but also, um, you know, as I mentioned, I think um, there's just this... Uh, some of these changes that are being made to their abilities to sense um, <clears throat> things in the airspace via radar and other uh, means that have really made 
these things that have maybe been there all along a lot more apparent and readily apparent. And, um, you know, once there was a little bit of political pressure and people caught on to what was going on and somebody had to make a decision and, you know, there are people on one side saying we don't need to start a war right now over a balloon flying, you know, across the U.S. And then others who are saying, you know, who knows what they're spying on? They're flying over, you know, nuclear missile facilities and things like that or or bases in in Montana or wherever it may be um and and that we need to shoot it down there's these kind of um opposing political forces that um created this big story and then you know everybody was kind of captivated by the time it flew across and you know hit South Carolina and once it was safe to shoot it down um you know that's when the real story to me starts to kind of figure out what was actually on board and what they were able to kind of pull from it. And, um, you know, we might not know for uh, a a long time exactly what that is, but that's really, you know, a a look into the the kind of sophisticated sensing technology that the Chinese uh, have in, in, you know, what they were able to look at and what they were looking for, you know, when they were flying this balloon across the the, the United States. Uh, honestly, um, we may get more out of it than they did at this point, given that we shot it down and now have kind of uh, a playbook of, you know, some of their technologies that came down with that balloon and, you know, some of the intelligence that they were, you know, spying on as it flew over the United States. So to your point of looking at their technologies, this makes me think of a story that you recently covered which is the announcement of the State Department's Office of the Special Envoy for Critical and Emerging Technology. So I'm going to hold back the skeptic in me about another committee. And I just, can you talk about that? What is it? um, What are some of the primary roles for this office? Yeah. So it's obviously very nascent at this point. And I don't know a ton of what it's, you know, going to work on specifically. I know that um, Secretary Antony Blinken has really had this major push for modernization across the State Department and really looking at how emerging technologies, some of the ones we've already talked about or, you know, mentioned, um, you know, Internet of Things, uh, AI and things of that nature, but also other things like disinformation and things that impact human rights, surveillance and whatnot. Um, really looking at how those impact global diplomacy and society writ large across the United or across the world, and looking at how the United States can be a leader in sort of shaping the norms around those things, so that um, you know other democratic nations can join on board and make sure that those oppo- opposing forces, um, whether it be in Russia or China or North Korea or other nations that are maybe not um, as democratic. Um, that they don't have this sort of leading voice in those things. So I, I think that's what it's intended to do. Um, but um, yeah, it, it it will be interesting to see, you know, exactly what um, types of projects or sorts of, um, you know, I guess uh, issues it will work around. I would imagine it to be mainly a policy element and that it's going to be trying to shape that policy again, globally writ large. Um, and um yeah, I I think, you know, a good use case or maybe since I wrote that article, something that um, came up actually last week um, that is probably I don't know that it was directly related to this office, but I would imagine it's something that's going to be similar to what it does. Um, the State Department actually issued a declaration um, 
to basically any nuke bearing uh, foreign nation saying, hey, look, we all have nuclear weapons. Um, we're all, you know, to some degree, probably working on artificial intelligence. Um, and we think it's probably not in anyone's best interest to connect our AI to those nuclear command and control systems because um, who knows what could happen. Maybe something goes wrong if we let the AI make decisions about this. That's, you know, obviously, you know, everyone's worst nightmare when we look at like sci-fi uh, movies and sort of go back to Dr. Strangelove or, you know, even like the the Terminator movies um, and, and giving like artificial intelligence the ability to sort of wage war, if you will. But um, again, it it sort of is the, the State Department attaching itself to a technology topic and looking to sort of set the tone for the rest of, you know, the world's leaders when it comes to these things. Um, so it's hard to deduce from that declaration if the State Department itself has sort of signed on at this point or is just sort of like saying, hey, I think this is a good idea and maybe we should all kind of pledge to do this. Um, again, sort of getting back into that topic of China and Russia and some of those kind of opposing forces. I think it's next to impossible or, you know, one of the more unlikely things that they would ever sign on to a similar sort of agreement. But um, it at least sets the State Department in the United States in a place that it's starting to present itself as a leader on these topics. Um, obviously, this has big impacts on, uh, you know, the Department of Defense, which is the one that would sort of be in charge of not connecting AI to uh, its nuclear command and control, um, and a number of other agencies who sort of deal with those things as well. So there, you know, it's, it's the very, um, initial jumping off point for something like this, but it's interesting to see this state department sort of take this approach. Again, I don't know that it was necessarily connected to that new special envoy, but, um, I do think we'll start to see more and more of this in uh, regarding things like, you know, responsible AI, misinformation, human rights and surveillance, open internet and free internet and things like that um, coming from the, the State Department. There's been a big call that I've heard among um, government leaders. The one that's coming to mind right now is General Skinner has made a call for more interaction and partnership between government and industry. And do you anticipate that this... Um, special envoy will affect that or lean into that or maybe say put on the brakes towards that do you have a sense of that no i mean i, I would think if if the state department wants to be a leader in this space it's going to have to look to the smartest and brightest and and the most tech savvy people and that is industry so it's going to have to um you know facilitate that and, and bridge that gap a bit more um I don't know how much it will come into impact with sort of the contracting for like, you know, what General Skinner might be uh, more focused on when it comes to like the DOD's adoption of IT and and contracting over those things. But um, certainly as it looks to build out this special envoy, bring people on board and learn things about, um, you know, these advanced topics uh, there's no way that the State Department internally is going to have that expertise or that knowledge base. So it's going to have to look to, you know, experts and and maybe it'll create, you know, some sort of um, board. I, I don't know if that's exactly what the envoy is supposed to be. So like similar to the way the DOD has its Defense Innovation Board and has some really bright people on there 
Um, maybe that's the direction that the State Department will go. But um, without a doubt, they're going to need to engage with industry a bit more because that's where, um, you know, the latest and greatest expertise is going to be. You've been covering GovTech for a while, several years. Does it feel like government is leaning into that partnership more? And I ask, when I first came into this world of GovTech, it seemed like there was a big, um, I don't know if conflict is the right word, but butting of heads between GOTS and COTS. So it feels like that isn't, there's not as much tension. There's not as much resistance to embracing and using industry technology in government. Like it used to be, no, no, we're building our own because it's got to be secure, whatever. But have you noticed that? It's hard to say. I think it comes in waves. I definitely think we're at a high point on that wave, if you will, um, where where there's definitely an open appreciation for what industry has to offer from the commercial space um, that that it just doesn't make sense for the government to custom make or spend the time or, you know, build something that's, you know, required for a specific use case when there's something that is out there that can be, you know, maybe in a, in a very small way ad, adapted to, to fit a government mission. So um, I don't understand why it would be, especially in, in an economic perspective in anyone's best interest, not to go with a commercial provider uh, when you can give business to, you know, hopefully a small mom and pop shop. If not, you can go with one of the, you know, major IT providers or an, a major defense firm or something like that, that, you know, does this for a living. Um and uh, yeah, so I think it 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 there's a, a much greater aptitude and willingness for that. And I think also, um, you know, a lot of that. Let me back up. There was a major sort of sea change around the healthcare.gov um, kind of debacle in the way that the federal government thought about buying IT. Um, a lot of it can be deduced to sort of that agile DevSecOps mindset, um, but it also brought a lot of that talent in-house through, you know, USDS, 18F, and others. And I think there's been a major push to bring really tech-savvy, smart, talented people into government. And I don't say that to say that they come necessarily to build things like that, but they have those relationships and they know that they're not going to be able to build things within government um, that the private sector isn't already building itself. And, and those relationships and that willingness, again, to go back to uh, the private sector for those things, because a lot of those people, again, already you know, came from backgrounds in private sector, know um, how to speak that language and where to get the best things and how to, or, or I guess I wouldn't say that how to build relationships, but already have those relationships. Um, so I think that's a large part of it as well. Um, and then um, you know, just in general with um, it, it, as much that's going on wrong in the cybersecurity space in the federal government or has been in recent years, there's been, a, I, I think with leadership of CISA and others, I think there's, you you sort of have to, at a point, put your arms up and say, hey, we need as much help as we can get because we can't do this alone. Um, so I think that plays into it too. Um, again, I, I, I've been covering this space, you know, uh, 
around nine years and I've seen it kind of ebb and flow. And I would imagine there will be a point where it could shift back in the other direction a little bit. It, I think I like to think of things as in sort of those wave structures where things come and go or almost like a pendulum where things swing back and yeah. forth. But, um, you know, right now I definitely think we're on the upswing in terms of, like you said, that, that, um, very, um, friendly, uh, private public partnership element. Well, and I think you nailed it. Like the the leaders that I've been talking to, they come with this mindset of we want the brightest, we want the best, you know, private sector within the agency. It doesn't matter. We we want to be on the cutting edge. And so they have that mindset of we're going to get it wherever we need to get it. And to that point, you can't, I mean, the government is not as much as I hate to say it, the government's not going to be able to compete with Silicon Valley or, you know, whatever valley uh, of tech entrepreneurial type people who want to work on, uh, you know, work for the the big tech firms um, who can get paid a lot more to do really much more cutting edge type things. Um, so the only way they can attract that uh, sort of cutting edge nature is to do it through contract partnership. Yeah. And partnership. Exactly. If they can't bring the talent in house, then they have to find a different way. And I think it's through that partnership. I want to circle back to something you said about hopefully partnering maybe with mom and pop shops. But so again, the cynic in me was just thinking, yeah, that's like impossible from yeah. where I sit because you have the agencies don't have a, or at least my understanding, the agencies don't seem to have a choice other than to use these big contract vehicles, which means one of the big integrators. Do you think that the Envoy might change that? Like, so we could, so agencies could partner more easily with these mom and pop shops? Or, I mean, it seems like that's asking us to turn the Titanic. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> yeah. not the Titanic, bad, bad metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not the most, um, I, I, I do follow a lot of contracting, especially in the IT space. And, um, you know, I, some of these larger acquisitions, they, they seem to be doing their due diligence when it comes to getting more small businesses and minority owned businesses. And just uh, so the, co- the the integrators are bringing these small mom and pop shops yeah. into the big contracts. Exactly. Yeah. But, okay. um, you know, still, you, you know, when it comes to certain things, there's, there's, you know, only so much that uh, if, if, if an agency is looking to procure cloud or something like that, you know, like the the DoD's joint warfighting cloud capability. Of course, it, the 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 companies named were Microsoft, Google, Oracle, um, Google. I, I'm spacing on the rest of them, but it, all that to say, they're these traditional, um, you know, major tech companies. Um, and and of course, there's certain. It, it's not because of any contract contracting nature that it happened that way. It's just, that's what the DOD needed. Um, so there's certain things that you know, these mom and pop shops are not going to make sense for, but I think in other cases, um, there are some people I see a lot in the department of veterans affairs because they, they look to veteran owned companies and things like that to, to sort of work with them, um, where it does make a lot more sense for some of the it things. And, you know, I, I don't have a great purview of, you know, other contracting spaces across the federal government, but I would hope that, you know, uh, agencies, um, 
like GSA are, are doing the due diligence and in, in setting the in incentives in place to make sure that those um, mom and pop shops are able to do business with the federal government as well as possible. I, I mean, and it is hard though. It, it, they don't make it easy um, in other regards, especially we, we read a lot about this a lot in the DOD side and that, you know, it really, for, for a small innovative, you know, handful of people, uh, organization that has these bright, innovative ideas to do work with uh, the Department of Defense. It, it just doesn't make sense. They would go out of business before they could right. ever serve, uh, you know, on their contract because the budget cycle just takes so long and everything's so slow and bureaucracy gets in the way. Um, so, uh, you know, we'd like to see more of it, but it, it is a tough environment. I, you know, as long as I've been covering it, I've heard GSA administrators and, you know, um, defense acquisition leads and people like that talk about how they're going to uh, work better with with small businesses and other, um, you know, uh, minority groups and things like that. But uh, it, 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 it it's it's a small small step in the right direction usually it, there's never right. a, a massive surge i mean i guess on the bright side at least there's a desire right um i want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh something that we saw in early january um the us patent and trade office sought out a partnership to perform red team penetration testing services. Sure. And more recently, the DOD announced the third installment of its Hack the Pentagon Challenge. Um, what are some of the USPTO and DOD's goals with this kind of testing? I mean, it's not new. Like, this has been around forever. So what's what's made it news, I guess, now? And, and what are their goals? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a continuation of the conversation we were just having in that it it, it brings in a diversification of talent and people um, to really drill in to the security of um, DOD and USPTO systems. Um, I, I can start with, the, I think the DOD, just because it's a much more broad um, application um, with Hack the Pentagon, I, and, and it really, um, versus the USPTOs looking to really potentially contract with one organization who's really just going to hardcore drill down into its systems. Um, Hack the Pentagon is kind of brilliant. And I mean, it's, again, brilliant in the government sense. It's not brilliant in the commercial sense because, you know, you name a, a, a major tech company out there and they've been doing bug bounties and, you know, which is what Hack the Pentagon is to some degree. It's a vulnerability disclosure program. Um, they don't always pay for them. So they aren't quote unquote bug bounties usually bug bounties, uh, you know, people get paid when they find bugs and then um, the organizations go back and fix them. But what they do is, you know, just sort of enlist crowdsourcing to bring in white hat hackers to say, um, you know, look at our public facing website. That's how the DOD started with its initial instance of Hack the Pentagon. And, you know, if you see a bug, report it to us and we'll reward you in some way. Um, over time, they've gotten to a place where I think just last year they find or they did their first um, payment structure and made it an actual bug bounty. Um, but what it does is it just enlists massive amounts of people to to look at these things. In a lot of cases, these are people who maybe don't you know buy into the nature of working a 
Pentagon job or a, a government job, or maybe for other reasons, maybe they've done something in their background that they can't get the job in the Pentagon that they want, but they can still serve their country and, and look for these things. And um, I kind of, as a writer or a journalist, kind of, you know, use the analogy of, you know, if I'm writing a book or an article or something like that, I want as many eyes as possible on that, um, you know, that rough draft so that, you know, you know, maybe the first 99 people don't catch, you know, that dropped right. period or, you know, the misuse of some word or something, but the hundredth person does. And it's sort of similar in the DOD space where, you know, they have thousands upon thousands of people looking at their public infrastructure and are kind of poking holes in things and looking for bugs. And these people are really, really, really smart um, and, and kind of, um, you know, are incentivized uh, in a lot of cases, either by money or other incentives to to kind of um, do this work. And at the end of the day, it's making DOD systems stronger. In the uh, USPTO sense, they're looking for a more narrow and tailored approach with, you know, red team penetration testing. They're, they're essentially doing the same things, but um, they're looking for a team um, from a third party uh, provider to come in and really just blast their systems and look for vulnerabilities. And so wait, um, you're telling me that all the agencies don't already do this. I just, <laughs> I assumed they did, Billy. <laughs> I think, I think to some degree, most of them do things like this, but uh, you know, it's not something that they necessarily have to, and, you know, they, they, they do basic security measures, but this is, you know, up there with the, the most um, the, or the more, um, thorough in, in terms of like continuous penetration testing and looking for ways that people could enter their systems. Um, a lot of times uh, these CISOs and the CIO organizations take their um, inside out approach and, and don't really think about how people are necessarily getting into their systems. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that's the the kind of role of what this, what an organization would do under this solicitation and, um, you know, really running it through the most advanced TTPs to to see ways that you know if if I was like a nation state uh, you know bad actor how I'm you know using some of their techniques um, in 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 the latest ways to kind of um, model those threat vectors to see you know if if USPTO systems um, are advanced enough or secure enough to to prevent that sort of entry and then um, you know all this kind of plays into you know, sort of what you said that, you know, they, all agencies probably should be doing this, but we see to a large degree that federal agencies writ large and the federal government writ large is it's largely behind on these things. And, um, you know, zero trust is the, the, the buzzword of today. And, um, it, it really plays into that, um, uh, you know, changing of a mindset and a lot of commercial sector organizations have been doing zero trust type things for a decade plus, um, and the federal government's finally getting its act together and moving in that, that direction. So, um, yeah, they should be doing it. But uh, luckily, they're they, you know even if they're not, they're finally catching up in a large regard um, in understanding that these are sort of the modern practices for good cybersecurity. Are there AI pen testing or synthetic pen testing that takes place? There is, there is, and it's, it's, uh, and like you said, automated pen testing. It, uh, a lot of agencies or or some agencies um, use it. I know um, some of the more advanced military services are doing continuous pen testing. Mm -hmm. um, 
where I think they are relying on automation to a degree uh, to continuously seek out, you know, those systems and make sure more so for um, accreditation purposes so that their software, they don't have to go through like the the Mm two-year accreditation cycle. So things can, it kind of builds into the DevSecOps mindset. Um, But um, yeah, so that they can get software online more quickly um, and that they're kind of getting this continuous monitoring uh, approach to cybersecurity, which again is, is, um, Something that's relatively new for the federal government. It's been talked about for a long while, um, but DHS uh, in in recent years has been sort of gotten to the point of maturity where all federal agencies are using that continue, continuous monitoring because it's again it's it's great to um, have an accreditation and sort of test a system at a point in time. But once that test is done and those check boxes are checked, um, what does that mean after that? Is it still secure, you know, next week or next month or next year? until that accreditation comes around it may maybe isn't you know uh you know bugs happen patches are needed things change and uh it is needed on a continuous basis that i mean that's the the big lesson that's been learned in modern cybersecurity is that um things aren't done in a vacuum or at a point in time it needs to be done continuously to prove yeah. effective against uh you know adversaries who are coming in from the outside yeah it's not a one and done, is it? Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's like life. Not, <laughs> not a one and done. So of the trending topics and storylines that are on your plate right now, what um, are you the most excited to cover? So I, you know, you caught me at a time where I was covering a lot more than I, I maybe typically am uh, earlier this year. But, um, you know, I'm not necessarily writing and reporting as much as I once was, but I am, you know, helping as the editor to sort of shape the coverage areas. And um, there are a number of areas that, um, you know, as as I kind of play that editor role that I'm very focused on. And obviously, I kind of split my hat between the the Fed civilian under Fed Scoop and uh, the defense IT space under Defense Scoop. And I'll, I'll, I'll start, you know, with the Fed Scoop side. Um, and I think it, it it is again a continuation of the same conversation we've already sort of been having because um, cybersecurity, zero trust, the kind of advancement of the mandates under the executive order um, will without a doubt continue to be the biggest story in the federal civilian side until, you know, obviously agencies stop right. getting hacked and uh, information so stops getting leaked. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> because, um, you know, because of the way the federal government contracts and operates, uh, it'll never be able to catch up with those advanced APTs and sort of the state of the art on the commercial side. So um, it, it only makes sense that um, it's going to be a, a, a race to catch up on that. But it, it has been meaningful. I don't think, um, you know, we saw the OPM breach back in the 2014-2015 timeframe. And um, that was a massive breach. And uh, there were th- some things done at that time to sort of say, hey, we need to get our our, our stuff in order to to make sure that we are more secure. And then it sort of was like, okay, we did that. And then just let things go back to normal. It seems like um, in a post solar winds and um, all the other uh, 
Log4j. Exactly. Log4j yeah. and all the other breaches that have happened in, you know, and now it's several years ago, but it still seems, you know, like it was yesterday because I think the federal government has taken an approach where um, because of the set, uh, the president's executive order and really this doubling down on zero trust, which to some degree, it, we're kind of getting to the point in the hype cycle where people are kind of getting a bit... Uh, just kind of exasperated by the buzzwords and like, what does this really mean? Or are we actually making progress? But all that to say, there's still this acute focus um, where I think people are continuing to have conversations about it and really focus it on it as part of the larger technology modernization conversation in the federal government that, um, you know, by this point in the OPM cycle, we probably would have been a little bit, a little bit more back to normal and just kind of people would have, you know, um, I guess. Right. I got a letter moved that said on from your information got stolen. I'm like, okay. And you're going to do what? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They'll, they'll, uh, have, you know, dozens of hearings on it and, you know, let everybody know that they're going to buy you one year of, you know, fraud See, protection. This <laughs> is to my point, death. going back to this new envoy, I'm like, is this what this is going to be? It's just more, you know, committee gatherings and nothing's really going to happen. That's so cynical. And unfortunately, I mean, that that's just um, the way the federal government works to a degree. It's built, uh, you know, it's this civil service, you know, organization built on top of a political structure where people come in for, you know, a handful of years at time that they'll work really hard on something or form committees or special envoys or, you know, put something into the budget or write legislation, whatever it may be. But, you know, a lot of those things die with those people or not when those people die, but when they leave the government. And, you know, unfortunately, we'll reach a point in another couple of years where, um, you know, we may have a new president. And that means a new secretary at all those cabinet level agencies, which means new IT decision makers and things like that. And there will be this reshuffling again. And a lot of those priorities will go with them. So um, and that's just unfortunately, the way a lot of those things work, um, in addition to some of the bureaucracy and contracting and slow moving budget cycles that we've already talked about, um, it, it just makes it infinitely hard for change and progress to be made in the government yeah. context. Democracy, man. <laughs> exactly. All right. I want to shift to our tech talk questions. Um, these are just kind of fun, quick answer questions, which we usually end up rat holing on a little bit because they're fun. So first question for you was, what was the very first piece of technology that you remember um, receiving or buying yourself? Yeah. Um, so I, I was uh, I was born in the late 80s. And so I came to, you know, had childhood and all that stuff in, in the early 90s. And I I, I I think the first thing that I remember being very meaningful to me was a, a video game system, but it was one of those handheld ones. And it was like a, a Sega, I think it was yes. called a Game Gear or something like that. But um, I'm not a big gamer now. You know, I, I have a system, but um, definitely not, you know, in terms of gaming and whatnot, it, it definitely didn't make a, a huge impact on me. But I definitely remember just taking that thing everywhere with me, probably too young of an age. It was probably the, you know, I, I'm a, parent now. And I'm, I'm sure my parents threw that thing at me. Like I sometimes guilty as charged will put a, a phone or an iPad in front of my kids if if they're extremely cranky or in the back of a car and screaming or something. So um, that was the first big thing that I, I can sort of remember. But um, yeah, I 
also, I, I mean, I think this was a little after that, but our first family computer, because this was back when mm-hmm. people had family computers, a, a right. desktop from Gateway. And it wasn't... Well, and then you remember the sound of the AOL dial-up. Oh, we? yeah. And that's what I was going to say. I, this was this computer wasn't even hooked up to the internet, I don't think. Um, right. I think this was just like a our first family computer, which was like floppy disks. And, yeah. Um, and, oh, and my gosh. Like I remember that, but, those. But just like the ability to like go and just tinker with things and, you know, kind of open your mind up to like this other, you know, digital world that, you know, largely at that time didn't exist, um, was pretty interesting. And just, you know, doing voice recordings or using MS paint or something like that. Um, it was pretty fascinating. Uh, eventually we'd get to the AOL dial up and all that stuff. And I would, you know, go on to be like any kid that age and a Napster or whatever kid who, you know, illegally downloaded music. If, if the FBI wants to come get me, they can. <laughs> but, um, guilty as charged. But yeah, I, I, I think, you know, definitely roots back in that early sort of nineties timeframe where it was kind of, you know, the, the gateway computers into like the, you know, the, the initial internet kind of coming out to the commercial public and people getting online for the first time was pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember that well. So, okay, very important question. I know you said you're not a big gamer, but did you play The Last of Us when it first came out or have you played it? Uh, I played it very briefly. Um, I, I just, so it it came out the time, around the time that my first kid was being born. So I, oh, I, I, okay. I, I pretty much lost uh, ability to play any games at that point, but I have watched a little bit of the show and I think they're doing a pretty good job of taking it away from the game in some regards, which I've, I've enjoyed because I, I, I don't think you can just create a TV show off of a game. You have to create, create a little bit more substance. Although from the people who I do know or have, you know, read comments from, the last of us game um, did a pretty good job of, you know, being cinematic and, and creating emotion and really. Oh, I would tugging at so your heart when my, when my son would play it, cause he was big into the last of us when it first came out and I would sit with him while he would play it. And he would tell me the storyline cause it was so good. Yeah. And he was excited for the show to come out. And then he's decided actually not to watch it because it verges too much off of what he knows to be the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so, and he's like, but what I've read, I think they're doing a really good job. So all I, right. think, I think part of it, and I'll just say that I think part of it, I just zombie stuff is too played out for me. I know they're technically like a different form of zombie. They're zombies. It's yeah. yeah. After the walking dead, I just can't do it anymore. I know the walking dead, man, is it still going? I think so. <laughs> it's <so terrible. laughs> All right. So last question for you. If you could um, wave your magic wand and like wish anything into existence, like think, go big, Billy, go sci-fi for me, please. Like what technology would you wish into your life? Mm. I, I'm a, I, I've always thought that, and maybe this is just like the limited capacity of my brain, but I've always thought that just like teleportation would be like- oh my Yes. My my dream thing. That is um, mine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm a big, I wouldn't say I'm like, I'm, I'm definitely not like a travel junkie, but I love to travel. And I just the constraints of, you know, the, the travel and things like that it just drive me nuts. Um, I think my other one would be self-driving cars for that same reason. I, I, 
I, I would yeah, love- but let's skip the self-driving cars and just go to teleportation. Oh yeah. Even if it means we have to be ripped apart molecule by molecule, <laughs> which apparently that is the way it works. Yeah. And then we're reconstructed, whatever. I don't care. That's the yeah. way I want to do it. <laughs> oh yeah, it would be all worth it. I, I live far away from my, my family or most of my family lives in Tennessee and um, I don't get to see them a ton. So just like the ability to hop in and have dinner with my family or something yes. like that. Or, you know, if I'm jonesing to go travel to a beautiful island or something and don't want to fly all, you know, across the the world to get there, um, you know, it'd be pretty nice to just bop over via teleportation. I completely support that. Well, our time is up. Thank you so much for um, spending this hour with me. It's been really fun. Yeah, same. It's been a pleasure. And I'd like to thank our listeners. So please share this episode, smash that like button, and we will talk to you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 